Dat is haar jaar. Father, we pray that as we take time out now from the things that are going on around us to hear you speak to us in your word so you would grant us your spirit. Uh, We want to hear you and we know our need. Please fulfil your promises to be with your people. And in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I'm still uh, working on this light situation. What am I doing here, Andrew? Sorry, I forgot to change it. Hey, there it is. In September of 1997, a man by the name of Ted Turner, uh, who I think was the founder of Time, uh, which then became Time Warner, one of the richest men in the United States, announced that he was giving a billion dollars to the United Nations. Uh, That billion dollars was uh, the amount that his shares in Time Warner had risen over the previous nine months. So he'd sat on his backside doing nothing and got a billion dollars richer. And he thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to give away some of my wealth. He acknowledged that it was only a small portion, relatively, of his wealth. But however you look at it, making a decision to give away a billion dollars is a pretty impressive thing. Think too what he gave it to. He wasn't some of the typical causes of the richest of the rich. He didn't establish the Turner Museum in some, you know, lucky city. Uh, he didn't endow the Turner Chair of, uh, you know, journalism at, say, Sydney University or some other lesser university. He didn't build the Turner Centre for the Performing Arts. Rather, he gave his dollars to food and clothing and shelter and medical care for the poorest of the poor. And then daring his fellow billionaires to follow suit, he said, if you are rich, you can expect a call or a letter from me. It's all very impressive, isn't it? A billion bucks. But it's interesting at another level as well. While being very generous, he still wanted to make sure everyone knew. Before making the gift, he called up talk show host Larry King so that he could start sort of circulating it to others that Ted Turner was giving a billion bucks. And then Turner made his announcement in a New York ballroom filled with tuxedos and evening gowns, reporters and cameras. In many ways, very impressive. But Jesus says there's still a better way of going about giving. Last week we looked at Jesus uh, starting his teaching on exceeding righteousness and he covered some of the ordinary areas of life. Uh, We looked at the passions of anger and lust, uh, the way that we make and care to keep promises and how we handle those who give us grief. Now, before we get into the section for this week, I, I need to ask you, of course, did, did last week actually make any difference to your life? You know, with the ordinary aspects of life, and we, we talked about how you could extend it to other areas as well. Did last week actually make any difference to your life as you heard Jesus? It would be a worry, wouldn't it, if you heard week by week the Word of God uh, here in the public meeting of the U, in your church, in your Bible study groups and so on, dozens and dozens of times God speaking to you. And it actually made no difference in your life that you were as enslaved to your passions as you were prior to hearing Jesus. It would be a tragedy to hear Jesus and be unchanged like a stone that is just hard and takes in nothing. 
And I hope you had an interesting week as you took in what Jesus said about the ordinary daily aspects of life. It's serious business, isn't it? We're not mucking around here. Jesus wasn't mucking around. Well, he turns to more religious aspects of life and deals with what is one of the greatest dangers to the soul of a Christian person. And that is hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, you have it there on your outlines. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus sets out uh, the four key things that he wants to say about the pious religious life. On the one hand, he says, beware. There's something about this stuff of which you need to beware. So we're thinking about when was the last time someone said to you, watch out. Danger. Beware. To be on serious guard. When it's Jesus who says that, you know that it's time to sit up and take notice. Secondly, the thing of which we're to beware is practicing our piety before others. The word uh, translated piety here in the NRSV, uh, and I've no idea why they did this, is actually the word righteousness. You beware of doing your things of righteousness or your deeds of righteousness. So we're still on the same page that we've been on from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're still in the same context that Jesus is talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, of being persecuted for righteousness' sake, of having a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And now he says, beware, beware of doing your righteousness before others. That's the third thing, doing it in front of other people in order to be seen by them. Watch out, he says, for doing good, godly things with a purpose in your heart. The purpose of being seen. Now notice Jesus does not say, don't do acts of righteousness if you're going to be seen. Uh, you know, you're wandering up the street, up in uh, King Street here or down Broadway, you see a person who's in obvious need, who's requesting some financial assistance, uh, you think that he's not just going to squander the money, you've got some change on you at the time, but lo and behold, there are some people around you on the street. And so you go up and say, look, buddy, I'd, uh, I'd love to help. I've got the money here, I'll show it to you, but I'll put it back in your pocket. I can't help because Jesus said, don't do it when there are other people around. So, be warm, be fed, see you later. Right? No, Jesus is not saying, don't do your acts of righteousness while other people see it. That would conflict, of course, with what he said back in chapter 5, we looked at last week. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds. Right? So Jesus is for that. But notice how he finishes that sentence. Do you remember how he finishes that sentence? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What Jesus is saying is, don't let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise you. Perfectly consistent what he says in chapter 6 with chapter 5. He's saying, don't do your act of righteousness with a purpose in your heart. The purpose that people will see you. You're praying or something like that in, in a public context. And the purpose in your heart is so that people will say, what a fine, upstanding Christian woman or man that person is. How totally impressive. Because if you do that, God is totally unimpressed. That's the fourth thing then. Jesus alerts us to the terrible danger which awaits you if you don't heed uh, his warning. 
namely that you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It's very important and interesting that Jesus uses the concept of reward quite shamelessly here. He's got no problem with the idea of reward. Uh, it's kind of nice in theory to think that, that rewards are unimportant or unnecessary, uh, but everything we do really is towards a reward. I, I bought a bike, a cycle, you know, a bicycle recently. You remember those things, they pedals? Uh, fitness, strength, long life. Grandchildren, it's for a reward, you see. It's for a reward. Um, the reward of being healthy. And in fact, all of our behaviour, in one sense, is towards an end. The question is, of course, what sort of end you choose. C.S. Lewis put it this way, I think very insightfully, in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says this, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. You know, naughty, but secular reward. He says, no, no, don't be troubled by that. He goes on, there are different kinds of reward. Uh-huh. Always a classical philosophical move is to make a distinction between two things so that you can reject one but accept the other. Here we go. There is the reward that has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. So he gives an example. Money is not the natural reward for love. Okay, you see the point he's making? He says there are different kinds of rewards. There's the reward that has no natural connection to the thing you do. And he says, for example, money is not the natural reward for love, which is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. Uh, kind of a cute you know, English mid-20th century um, uh, illustration. I think you, know, you can switch around the other way. You women, don't marry those guys for, your, for their men. I mean, not for their men. <laughs> for their money. You can marry them because they're mad, you see. That's the point. That's the natural reward for love. He goes on, but marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. And he's not mercenary for desiring it. You understand the distinction that he says? There's what's proper and there's what's improper. In other words, if our desire to please God is genuine and he communicates his pleasure to us, There's a kind of circle that's been completed. The reward is the consummation of the righteous act itself. The pleasing, the pleasure of God. It's not some material thing that's tacked on which is unrelated to the action that we do to receive it. The point that Jesus makes is that if if you do your act of righteousness to be seen by others, then you get precisely that reward. That's what you get. And you need to settle it in your heart. You might as well do it this day. Right? This is an issue which uh, you young ones, I'm frankly, I'm over this sort of stuff. I've got other issues I'm dealing with. But for you guys, being seen by others, right? that is one of the key university student issues, isn't it? What do others think? Well, how do they, am I impressed? Will they, where, who am I? Who am I? And how do other people respect me? Right? That, I mean, every, so many moments of so many days are spent wondering, I wonder what they think from the, my clothes to my piercings. You know what I mean? Why is it that so many people have all the same piercings now, just to be radical? <laughs> to all look the same? You see it all the time. And you need to settle it in your heart. Whose applause and approval do you want? Whose applause and approval do you live for? 
Do you want the applause and approval of those around you, of, of, of me, of other people, of your colleagues, of your ministers, of your lecturers, these mere creatures of a minute who are here today and gone tomorrow? I read recently about a, uh, a district communist party conference underway in the Moscow province uh, some time ago. I'm going to read quite an extensive uh, commentary on what happened there, but I think it's worth it. Stay with it. And uh, it's kind of amusing in its own way as well. So there was a, a party conference being held, presided over by a new secretary of the district party committee, replacing one who'd been recently arrested. At the conclusion of the conference, a tribute to Comrade Stalin was called for. Of course, everyone stood up just as everyone had leapt to their feet during the course of the conference with every mention of his name. And the hall echoed with stormy applause, rising to an ovation. For three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, the applause continued. Now, I don't know if you've ever, you know, applauded for a long time. Uh, I, I occasionally go to the opera, uh, being the kind of guy, you know, cultured and appreciative of high art that I am. And it's the place where you do your longest applauding, it seems to me. I've never applauded as long as I do opera. And, you know, you get wild and rapturous for a while, and after 30 seconds you think that's enough, but then they come back on stage and you can kind of go there. It, it's actually hard work. Clapping. Palms get sore. Raised arms are aching. The older people in this Communist Party conference were panting from exhaustion. It was becoming insufferably silly, even to those who adored Stalin. However, who would dare be the first to stop? The new secretary of the district party could have done it. He was standing on the platform and it was he who had called for the ovation. But he was still a newcomer. He'd taken the place of a man who'd been arrested. He was afraid. After all, secret service officers were standing in the hall, applauding and watching to see who would be the first one to quit. And so, in that obscure small hall, completely unknown to the great man himself, Stalin, the applause went on. Six minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes. They were cactus. They could not stop until they collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, they could kind of cheat a little bit. Clap less frequently, but less vigorously. Not so eagerly, but up on the stage, where people can see them, they had no options. The director of the local paper factory, an independent and strong-minded man, stood on the platform. Aware of all the falsity and the impossibility of the situation, he still kept on applauding. Nine minutes. Ten. In anguish, he watched the secretary of the district party committee out the side of his vision, right? But the latter did not stop. It was insanity. To the last man, we'd make believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope that district leaders were just going on and on, applauding till they fell where they stood. So some of them were carried out of the hall on stretches. And even then, those who left would not falter. Then after 11 minutes, the director of the paper factory assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. And a miracle took place. Where there had been universal, uninhibited, indescribable enthusiasm, it evaporated. To a man, everyone else stopped there and sat down. They'd been saved. Uh, the commentator puts it, the squirrel had been smart enough to jump off his revolving wheel. But then there's a conclusion. That, however, was how they discovered who the independent people were. Okay? And that was how they went about eliminating them. That same night, the factory director was arrested. They easily 
found a, re- a reason to give him 10 years in jail on the pretext of something quite different. And after he'd signed a form, uh, the final document of the interrogation, his interrogator reminded him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. I want to ask you as we get into what Jesus says here, uh, is that a kind of a parable for your life? Is that a kind of a parable for your life? Desperately performing for the sake of others around you, endlessly making sideways glances to see what other people are doing and how much they're watching you. To be seen by them and approved. Some people kid themselves that they don't care what others think about them. Just what we think about ourselves, what I think about myself. But even then you've got to ask the question, are you a sufficiently worthy audience for yourself? And Jesus puts before us the possibility that God himself will be your audience. That God himself will applaud you. And that around your life at various points, if you could hear properly, you would hear the applause of heaven. And so he gives three examples of exceeding piety. The first one is alms, or money for the poor. Verse 2, so whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Check this out, though. You've got some money, and uh, I've decided to give my money, and uh, I want you to notice, uh, but uh, just in case you don't notice, I'm going to... (coughs) Blow my trumpet. Uh, There's a great CD which, if you don't have a little plug, or a gospel according to Groove, a magnificent CD with great Christian songs, great jazz, and a particular guy who plays air trumpet, indistinguishable from the actual trumpet that he also plays. And they have a nice competition between him and another trumpeter. Uh, anyway, air trumpet. Oh my goodness! You noticed that I was giving when I blew my trumpet. Oh, I didn't mean that. I'm so surprised that you noticed me that I was giving my money when I happened to just blow my trumpet. Of course, it's a cartoon that Jesus is painting here, isn't it? Uh, And we see it all the time. When someone's giving a large cheque to a needy charity, the photographers just happen to be there. It's incredible. What a coincidence. Channel 9 has so many photographers, they can cover every event. They just happen to hear that Mr. So-and-so was going to hand over a cheque. And we go. And it's in order that we go, wow, what a generous guy, what a generous woman she is. But in fact, of course, they're giving, at least in part, precisely in order that people will say, wow. And when they do that, they've perverted the whole thing. What should be about love has become a sickening act of self-righteousness. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. In classical uh, Greek culture, the hypocrite was an orator or an actor. It was actually a term of, not abuse, but of a job description. It was a person who laid aside her or his true identity and assumed a false one. They were no longer themselves. Quite deliberately, they were in disguise, impersonating someone else. In particular, the way they did it was they wore a mask on a stick. Well, that's why in the context of the theatre, where everyone knows what's going on, there's no harm in that, is there? They know that the people are on the stage playing a part for the applause. The problem with religious hypocrites is that there is a deliberate deception that takes place. They're like actors and yet they take some religious action which is real and turn it into something it was never meant to be. A theatrical display before an audience done for applause. And what Jesus says about hypocrites 
in that most magnificently wise, insightful way of his is he says, they have received their reward. You do that kind of stuff? You do stuff so that people... Well, good for you, says Jesus. You get exactly what you want. Live on it, won't you? You know, just eat it right up. You get your praise. You get the recognition of being seen by others, but that's it. Don't expect to get paid a second time. So Jesus goes on, verse 3, But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, there's something uh, slightly uh, comical about this, isn't there? I've never met someone so physically uncoordinated. I mean, you've really got to let your mind go here. But they can do something with one hand, and this hand over here goes, Wow, see, I've never noticed. This, look, this thing is happening. Bang, I just bumped into it because I didn't even see what was happening. Jesus says, don't even observe it yourself. Don't even watch yourself. Don't be a spectator of your own generosity. Don't be impressed by yourself. Take no notice of it. That's the point, isn't it? It's a sharp point. How often have you... I don't know whether you've done any acts of real genuine generosity. But you go away and you think, mm, not bad, not bad. When it comes to giving, whether it's to the poor uh, or to your church or to missionaries, uh, which are the three primary biblical destinations for our financial generosity, you know that, don't you? The poor, your church and missionaries. I suspect it's the case that most of us give very little. Uh, I've done some calculations on you know, estimates of uh, churches in various situations. I suspect barely between more than 2 or 3%. Uh, really is what people give. Sometimes we're encouraged to give because we'll feel good. Uh, and that's true. Sometimes you do feel good and sometimes you don't feel good. But either way, that's not really the reason to do it. It might be a byproduct, but that's not the reason. The reason is for the thing itself. Don't be a hypocrite looking generous, being selfish. And you need to work hard at this. Doing uh, your giving in secret. You, know, you probably don't know that the single biggest contributor to social welfare in this country, apart from the government, is a church agency. That's not even, it's not the Salvos, in fact, even. Completely unknown. Why not when you ask them, and I'm not going to tell you who they are because I wouldn't want that, uh, when you ask them, why don't they let people know? The answer is because we're supposed to do our good work secretly. I mean, they could do a lot of advertising. Mm. They don't. And they don't help people. And Jesus says, that's the way. That's the way. Because your father sees in secret. The second act of righteousness that Jesus touches on is prayer, verse 5. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Now, it turns out that devout Jews prayed five times a day. Uh, at the beginning and at the end of the day when they got up and just before they went to bed they said the Shema, a section from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and then at three set hours 9, noon and 3pm they would say a thing called the 18 benedictions and particularly the 3 o'clock uh, session if you were near the temple you'd go in to pray in the temple but if you weren't you'd simply stop what you're doing at the time turn your face in the direction of the temple and pray in public reciting the so-called Shemona Esra and of course you know that modern day Muslims have a similar sort of practice. And Jesus picks up on this and says when you pray 
beware of looking as though you're very concerned about God, but in fact are just using that apparent concern about God to be concerned about others and what they think of you. If that's the case, again Jesus says, you get what you want, what you actually want. Not what you pray for, but what you actually want. To be seen by others and praised by them. And that's the end of the story. Now again, I don't think Jesus is saying, don't ever pray in public. For example, uh, in a restaurant uh, or a prayer meeting. Actually, I was thinking about this. You guys don't, I suspect, go to restaurants very often. Neither do I. I have kids. And uh, so that's going over there, really. Uh, although it was my anniversary last night, I'm pleased to tell you, 14 years. Thank you, thank you. She's a, she's a lucky woman. And, uh, and you know, it's not, I'm not saying, it's not wrong to pray in a restaurant. Grace, we're in a very small little restaurant and there are lots of people around us, but uh, it's quite right that you should pray in a restaurant. Uh, I hope you do that. You know, you know, that's the other reason that you might not pray is because you're embarrassed. Uh, that would be a crazy reason not to pray because you're afraid of what people think negatively of you. But Jesus is not saying, don't pray when others can see you. He's saying, don't pray in order that others can see you. So when you pray in public, uh, in the context of your church, for example, don't kind of go on and on with long and flowery phrases, kind of quoting every Old Testament phrase that comes to mind so that God sort of stands back and says, oh, more Old Testament phrases than even I can remember. <laughs> Very impressive. My, what a superb Superbly crafted prayer. In fact, in public prayer, my suggestion is that you tend to pray shorter rather than longer. Different from private prayer. Okay? Pray brief. Pray substance. Not great long, flowery things. And don't pray it in order to be seen by others. Jesus' concern is the purpose of your heart. Don't use God and religious stuff to milk applause from others. Uh, Jesus goes on, verse 6, But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will, will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, Jesus gives you one do and one don't. He says, do, do pray in secret. Uh, go into your room, or the word literally actually is, is uh, your, your closet, your um, clothes drawer. Right? Go right into your clothes drawer precisely where you can be guaranteed no one will find you. Oh my goodness. Bah! <laughs> There's someone opening your, your frame. And he says because God get this is in secret. Now that, I don't know whether you're an underliner. That's a phrase that's worth underlining. God is. Where does God dwell? He dwells in secret. That's uh, the cross that tells you that, isn't it? Just by the way. <coughs> Think about that for a moment. Where is God at his most powerful? Well, God is in, most, is in smashing Canaan. God is at his most powerful in a limp man hanging on the cross. That's God who dwells in secret. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, but Jesus also says then, don't do pray in secret, but don't heap up empty words. Then he teaches us the prayer that's most in danger of being used as empty words, since it's so familiar. Uh, the Lord's Prayer. If, uh, if prayer is like air to the soul, as one writer's put it, then I think what you see in the Lord's Prayer is two halves, a kind of a breathing in of the righteousness and will and purpose and character 
and reputation of God and then a kind of a breathing out of our needs and concerns for, for our physical sustenance, for our spiritual sustenance, our greatest spiritual need, forgiveness and so on. And Jesus actually, I want to suggest, meant what he said. He said, pray in this way. Actually use the Lord's Prayer as a blueprint for your prayers. Cover these things, praise for God, and then your concerns. Well, third example, fasting, verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others what they are, that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Fasting as an act of religious devotion was highly valued, uh, not only among Jewish groups, but also uh, amongst other religious orders. Uh, for Jews, not only was fasting observed by the entire community during major religious festivals, such as the Day of Atonement, or what is now called Yom Kippur, uh, voluntary individual fasting was widely approved as a vital mark of religious devotion. Uh, you remember the, the pious Pharisee who fasted twice a week from Luke chapter 18, usually on Mondays and Thursdays, as it turns out. Likewise, the early church uh, we have records of uh, fasted from time to time, and often a missionary explosion has been accompanied by fasting. To be honest, I'm not uh, sure why particularly. Uh, it received very little attention in the New Testament. It's hardly something that you'd even know about uh, from the New Testament, although we're aware of it from the Old Testament. But Jesus here kind of assumes that picking up uh, from their Jewish heritage, people will fast. And he says the same story. When you fast, don't look dismal. Don't make sure that people know all about it. You know, I'm so spiritual, I've got no energy. Instead, he says, verse 17, when you fast, put oil on your... That might not be the first advice that comes to your mind, but put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, we, we do need esteem and we get our esteem from others. I, that's true, I think. But to seek to get our esteem from each other or from me or from you or from people around us, frankly, is nothing short of idolatry. God knows you. God loves you. God died for you. You don't need to get your applause from these little people around you. Many people have noted that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to great applause and then they crucify him on Friday, five days later. It's madness to place your esteem in something as brittle as the applause of others. So Jesus says, if you're fasting, look good. Get the oil out. Or the kind of modern day equivalent, whatever that might be. Apparently the next big thing I've read in, you know, <laughs> I don't know where I read it actually probably men's health now that I think about it I must confess I from time to time succumb to those good looking doctors anyway <laughs> the next big thing from pharmaceutical companies is men's cosmetics okay and here's biblical justification for that <laughs> you kind of get out your mascara and your rouge or whatever it is I don't even know what it is Jesus says look good so that people don't even know you're fasting but God who is in secret will see you and reward you. Let's draw the threads together here. Uh, Jesus, of course, is making one simple, powerful, profound point. <coughs> Beware of practising your piety. Beware of being righteous before others in order to be seen by them. Choose your audience well. 
See, some people will not approve of the way you live your life and uh, in your religious devotion or even in the ordinary day-to-day conduct of your affairs. Right? Some people may approve too much. Either way, who cares? Who cares? But to have God, God Almighty, the Heavenly Father, say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my glory, to apply to that audience. Now that is worth everything. Uh, as we did last week, we can kind of extend what Jesus says to all sorts of other areas of active righteousness, can't we? Uh, one thing that uh, springs to mind most obviously is taking up uh, areas of ministry responsibility. Uh, being a Bible study group leader or playing music in church or serving in some capacity in the EU or in your home church, particularly in upfront ways. What's difficult about that, of course, is that it is almost by nature necessarily public, these kinds of acts of righteousness, so that you can't just do it in secret. But Jesus says the same thing, you see. Don't be a servant of the passing crowd. Look to God for his approval. The audience of one. That's a key phrase, right? The audience of one. The one who really matters. We get so much of how people, uh, of how to live from people around us. And when that dominates us, we are prisoners in a prison without walls. We're prisoners to their approval. Don't live, says Jesus, for the applause of others. Don't be a slave. That's why comedians, uh, if you see comedians or listen to the, um, you know, um, Fredo and Murpho on um, Today FM, you know, in the breakfast show or the drive time or whatever it's called, uh, they so quickly resort to being smutty. Have you noticed if they so quickly, could, could they desperately need a laugh. And cheap jokes get cheap laughs. Jesus says, go for the really small audience, not yourself, not others, but God. Be a free person and live for him. And then, of course, you can serve others rather than manipulating them. Let me read to you from a man who lived this truth at the core of his being, the Apostle Paul. Writing about himself and his ministry, he says, Think of us in this way as servants of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of your heart. And then each one will receive commendation from God. He's a servant and it's required that he be found faithful. The Corinthians want success and glamour and religious stardom, but he says he doesn't care less. It is a small matter that he should be judged by them or by any human court. He said he doesn't even judge himself. Not that he's a slacker, he's got a clear conscience, he's not aware of anything against himself, but it is the Lord who judges. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time when Jesus brings to light the things that are hidden in secret, in darkness. You see, like what Jesus says, this all comes down to one thing, that judgment really is in the hands of the Lord. 
It's faith. Is there really a God who sees in secret? Is there really a God who is in secret? That that's his dwelling place. That is the secret to righteousness, you see. The very key is faith. It always is. Faith is always the engine room of the Christian life. A real, live, vital trust that God is who he says he is, that he never doesn't notice you, that he knows what is good and and he can be trusted for you to live your life for him. Let me say, if you're not a Christian person here today, you will find yourself living your life like that Communist Party event, endlessly clapping, looking on to see who's watching you, or even worse, living entirely for yourself, utterly turned in on yourself and therefore cut off from everyone else. The only way out is to trust the living and true God. Turn to him. See in Jesus someone whom you can love and live for, who will forgive and guide and direct you. And the way to do that is simply to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, perhaps for the first time ever, me. And if you are a Christian here today this afternoon, can I say, get this one right. You get this right and lots else just kind of falls into place. This is the secret of the righteousness that counts. Make sure it really is a small matter what other people think of you or even yourself. Live with radical self-abandonment, a radical God-devotion that cares only for what your Father in heaven, the one who sees in secret, thinks. Because your Father who sees in secret will reward you, reward you with the gift of himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us such a faith that we would see with the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you are the one who dwells in secret and so live for your applause only. Make us doers of great righteousness, Father, we pray, and doers with the right reason for Jesus' sake.